when I was a, just a lad, I, I assumed that the only reason people were not Christians is because they had not yet heard the gospel. I mean, who's going to say no thanks to the, the greatest news on the planet, that God loves us so much that he sent his only begotten son who willingly went to the cross and took our sins upon himself and died in our place so that our sins might be taken as far as the east is from the west, remembered no more. We can be indwelt with the Spirit of God, empowered to live uh, a, a life that with God, and then ultimately when we die, we just get brought back to life to live forever with God in heaven. Who's going to say no thanks to that? So I figured the only reason people aren't Christians is they have not yet heard. So I was shocked the first time I shared the gospel with somebody and, and received uh, no thanks. Did you understand what I just told you? I must have misspoke because how could you say no to that? Well, that caused me to scratch my head, right? What? And, and then my, as I got a little older, I figured, all right, it must be lack of evidence. Uh, they, they just aren't sure that this is true. So that caused me to begin uh, studying up on apologetics, Christian defense of the faith, so that I would have reasons uh, to give people as to why the Bible is true and why we believe that Jesus rose from the dead and is, in fact, the Son of the living God. But despite the evidence, I still sometimes got no thanks. And it's not like they had questions I hadn't even been able to answer or, or, or it, it wasn't that they seemed to need more evidence. They just they weren't interested. What? <laughs> you're saying no thanks to this good news, and, and it's not even because you're not sure it's true? What's going on? Well, I have come to realize that uh, there are probably as many reasons for rejecting Christ as there are unbelievers. But one of the reasons is because people just, some people don't even want God in their life. They're just not interested in the things of God. They are so consumed with this world and what it offers, that God just isn't really um, an interest to them, some, someone they're longing to know. And in our text today, we, we see, uh, text today is, uh, a sermon today is titled, Deciding to Kill Jesus. And this is the story where the leaders of Israel decide not to believe in Christ, but rather to kill him. And we want to look at this story because it, it shows one more of the motivations uh, that some people have for rejecting Jesus. We want to learn from their experience so as not to make the same mistake. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 11. We're looking at the story of why, why the Jews decided to kill Jesus. John chapter 11, our text today starts in verse 45. But before we read, I want to say this. Today's text follows immediately upon the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead, uh, arguably one of Jesus' greatest miracles. Lazarus had been uh, dead and buried for four days. He's the brother of uh, Mary Magdalene and Martha. They were friends of Jesus. They lived about two uh, miles out of Jerusalem in a place called Bethany. And when Lazarus gotten sick, they sent word to Jesus. Please come. And they believed 
that Jesus could heal Lazarus. But Jesus didn't make it in time. In fact, the text tells us that he purposely delayed. So he allowed Lazarus to die so that uh, God might reveal his power through him. So when Jesus does finally show up, there is a crowd because uh, apparently Lazarus' family was uh, prominent, probably wealthy, and there were a lot of, uh, they had a lot of friends who were there grieving with them for the death of Lazarus, probably some professional mourners. Uh, they had professional mourners in Israel. So the, there was a, cl- a crowd when Jesus showed up and brought Lazarus from the dead. He tells Martha, have the stone rolled away from the grave. She said, but Jesus, he's been in there four days. Uh, he's going to smell. He said, but she, she obeyed because she has faith. And Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he does. So here's the verse we read immediately before our text. John 11:44. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Amazing. What a miracle. If, if you and I had witnessed that, how would we have responded? Well, now we read our text for today. Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into, the one, into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Well, the first thing I want to point out here is that many who witnessed uh, Lazarus coming forth from the dead believed in Jesus. Right? Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And so here we see that there are a lot of people that we know who long for God in their life. They do. They just don't know where to find him. And, and that's the case with many in the crowd. Uh, and so when they see Jesus call forth Lazarus back from the dead, they recognize God is at work through Jesus. And so they believe in him. And what does that mean? Well, it means that they believe that he is the Messiah, uh, the one prophesied by the prophets. They become his followers. They become Christians. And so there are friends of ours, co-workers, neighbors, classmates, who, who are longing for God's power to be at work in their lives. They know that they need help uh, to, to be a better person. They know that they need help to have better relationships They know that they need their sins forgiven and they want to relate to God. And so for those people, they they just need to be told the gospel 
and then given evidence. And so for those people, we do need to bone up on our apologetics. And we do need to give evidence uh, that demands a verdict, that supports uh, the gospel. And for those people, it will be compelling and they will believe. But there are other people for whom lack of evidence is not the reason they reject Jesus Christ. We, we read in verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So some of the crowd that had witnessed this great miracle didn't believe in Jesus. Instead, they headed over to the Pharisees, not to evangelize the Pharisees, not to convince them, but to inform. Because they saw something uh, in this miracle that, was, that they considered a threat. So they went and told on Jesus. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. I want you to understand that uh, the council did not doubt the veracity of the miracles. They didn't question whether or not Lazarus had actually risen from the dead. Uh, They had been watching Jesus. They had seen him give sight to the blind. They had seen him uh, help the lame walk. And now, bring the dead back to life. They did not question whether these were true miracles. Uh, They knew that this had actually happened. And yet they did not believe. So, what are we going to do? He's performing signs. That's That's the facts on the ground. How are we to respond? What are we going to do? And every person on planet Earth has to answer that question as it relates to Jesus. What am I going to do? In light of who he is, how am I going to respond to him? Well, how do they respond? Well, the first thing I want to point out is what they don't do. In our text today, nowhere does the council Uh, Grapple with the question, who is Jesus? Might he, in fact, be the Messiah? Should we believe in him? They don't even ask that question. I think it's because they don't care. They're not really interested in uh, God in their lives. You know, Jesus tells us uh, in in another place that even if somebody comes back from the dead uh, and bears witness to uh, eternal truths, there are some people whose hearts are so hardened they won't believe. And that's exactly what's happened here, right? A a dead person has come back to life, and yet some people's hardness towards Christ, uh, their appetite for the things of God is so low, their hearts are so hardened, that even a dead person coming back to life does not cause them to believe. There are only two possibilities. Either Jesus is performing these miracles in the power of God or in the power of Satan. And the Pharisees, in Matthew, we are told that the Pharisees try to claim that Jesus did his miracles empowered by Satan. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22, we read this. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke, 
and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? So they're asking the logical question. Uh, How did he do this? And might God be at work in him? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, no, that heard it is important. Uh, It's not that they are reacting to the miracle. They're reacting to the people's interpretation of the miracle. That's what scares them. That's what they respond to. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Wow. So the Pharisees are saying, uh, they're not contesting that the miracle has been done, but they're assigning credit to Satan rather than to God. And this is the passage in which Jesus says, every sin will be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In other words, you are crediting you are crediting to Christ. Uh, you're assigning Christ to the to, to the dark side. Well, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, "Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand." If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So Jesus shows this is just illogical thinking. Why in the world would Satan cast out Satan? It doesn't make any sense. I'm clearly doing this uh, by the power of God. Well, these, uh, the council, they don't ever consider believing in Jesus. They only consider two options. And the first option is do nothing. And they don't like that. So here's what they say, verse 48. If we let him go on like this, in other words, if we do nothing, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If we just let Jesus continue doing what he's doing, performing signs and teaching people about God, everybody's going to conclude, rightfully so, he's the Messiah, and they're going to believe in him. And then, now they're extrapolating. If they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they're going to then start agitating for independence from Rome. They're going to try to make Jesus the king. And then uh, we're going to have a a rebellion on our hands. And big, powerful Rome is going to come down and squash us. And we're going to lose our place. So here's the council, the 71 most powerful men in Israel who have their position at the favor of Rome. The reason they're powerful and wealthy and privileged in Israel is because they have Rome's favor. But if we allow a rebellion to happen under our watch, big, powerful Rome's going to come, squash the rebellion, we're going to all lose our places. We can't let this happen. We can't just do nothing. Man. But who's the power in the minds of the council? Uh, who, who are they afraid of? Who looms biggest in their minds and hearts? Is it God? No, it's Rome. The, these are worldly thinking men. And yet they are occupying the positions of, of leadership amongst the people of God. How sad is that? when the leader, leaders of God's people just think 
on a human plane and with human wisdom. But it's, it's Rome that they want to please. It's Rome that they're afraid of. Nowhere in the text do they ever ask the question, uh, boy, I wonder what God is doing here. I wonder what would please God. If Jesus is in fact the Messiah, wouldn't you trust God to protect you from Rome? I just think these guys are uh, just secular at heart, even though they walk around in the religious trappings of the day. So we can't, we can't let him do nothing. We've got to do something. And Caiaphas gives the second option, kill Jesus, verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. In other words, you don't know what you're talking about, guys. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Wow. Here's the Supreme Court of Israel, the Supreme Court of God's people saying, uh, we've got to kill an innocent person in order to bring about a greater good. The ends justify the means argument. Right here. And where in the Bible does God ever authorize doing uh, wickedness to bring about a good uh, result? Where does God ever say, hey, listen, I need you guys to do some wickedness to help me further my good purposes in the world. Hey, I need you to act unjustly so that, so that my people are protected. No! And God forbid that we should ever buy, you know, swallow that argument or buy into that kind of thinking. No, 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 no. We do right and we trust the outcome to God. We do justly and we trust the outcome to God. It might not be the outcome that we want, but it will be the right and good outcome. So these guys... They are, they are all agreeing. Uh, we are going to kill an innocent person because they don't believe that Jesus deserves to die. They know that he's innocent, but they make a strategic decision. We're going to kill him so that the Romans won't come down and take our place and crush our nation. Such, such unfaithful thinking. Well, then we learn that Caiaphas actually spoke by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, Caiaphas is still responsible for what he said, and he's responsible for, for the motivation of his heart, and he had what he said with his mouth, uh, he didn't mean it the way the Holy Spirit did. What the Holy Spirit is saying is, yes, Jesus will die, and his death will be a substitutionary atonement for the sins of the whole world. And at precisely through the death of my son, which you are uh, wickedly conspiring to bring about, I will save the nation, not just the nation, but all uh, of my people throughout the world and throughout time. The substitutionary atonement of Christ, uh, his death being sufficient payment for the sins of the whole world, is at the very heart of Christianity. And so from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. 
So now let me make some. I have five takeaways from this story for us today. Here's the first one. If you want God in your life, look no further than Jesus. There are many, and and maybe some here today, who you want God in your life. That's why you're at church, right? I know I need the power of God at work in my life. I want a relationship with God. I'm longing for that. Look no further than Jesus. He is God, the Son of the living God. And if you put your faith in him, you will have a relationship with God. And the power of God will be at work in your life. Look no further. Number two. Some people reject Jesus because they see him as a threat. And we need to understand this when we do evangelism. For some people, it's not just that they've never heard the gospel. It's not even that they lack evidence. They just think Jesus uh, gets in the way of their having the life they really want. And they're like, if Jesus is king, then I can't be king. And now I've got a problem. And so they reject Christ because they are threatened by who he is. You know, I've seen this a lot. And here's here's a way I see this worked out. I watched in, in college, I have a number of friends, they grew up in, in Christian families, and they consider themselves Christians, but now they're in college, and they're free to make their own choices, and, and there are lots of temptations in the world. And they want to sleep with their girlfriend, and they want to go out partying, and, and uh, doing trying drugs, and, and they, they go do that, and it's, it's exciting, and it's fun. But there's this cognitive dissonance because as they're doing this, they're realizing this is, I know that this is not right in the eyes of God. And, and so for a while they live in this, with this uh, tension in their minds and hearts. Something's got to give, right? And so, so often what I see is eventually they just give up Christ altogether. And they stop claiming to be a Christian so that they don't have to live with the cognitive dissident. And they just give themselves over to their secular life, where they don't have to worry about trying to please King Jesus. Third takeaway. Those who reject Jesus doom themselves to life without God. There is, if you want to have God in your life, it always comes through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to have a a relationship with God, if you want God's power at work in your life, it comes through faith in Jesus. Christ is not just one option. Uh, Recently, I heard a guy talking, and he, he said, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that Jesus is the only way. It's just, he's, it's my choice. I choose to be a Christian, but I could be okay, you know, I could have a relationship with God uh, by practicing other religions. It just happens to be my religion of choice. That's not true. That might sound good to to the uh, ears of modern society, but that is not based in biblical truth. There are not multiple paths to God. There is one path, and it is faith in his son, Jesus. And so, if you, I mean, think about this, come on. 
You think, hmm, if I could, if I can relate to God with many different, in many different ways, why am I going to choose to take on Christ and his uh, definitive commands? <laughs> I'm going to go be like a Buddhist where I get to still be king and, and then of my own life and then practice some meditation. Right? And so, but that's not an option for us. You, you, you can't have a relationship with God and, and, and say no to Jesus and yes to Hinduism or Buddhism. It's, it's through Christ. And so if you reject Christ, you're rejecting God in your life, both in this life and in the life to come. And Jesus, he is coming again, and he will establish his kingdom on earth. Right now his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, but he is returning in which his kingdom will become uh, a very present, full material kingdom. And at that point, if Christ is not your king, then you're a rebel. And his return won't be a day of celebration. It will be a great day of woe. So sometimes in our evangelism, we have to get to that place and say, do realize the consequences of rejecting Jesus Christ. Your eternity is at stake. Number four, those who testify to Jesus' life-giving power will be persecuted by those who see Jesus as a threat. I want to skip to chapter 12. Uh, verse 9. The Pharisees, well, I should say the council, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. By the way, you would expect the Pharisees to be excited about the resurrection of Lazarus because they were always fighting it with the Sadducees over the question of whether or not there's resurrection from the dead. Uh, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. They believed that this life is all we've got. But the Pharisees said, hey, there's coming a resurrection. So you'd have thought they would have been excited about Lazarus, because he kind of helped prove their point, but they didn't. Verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was in Jerusalem, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And so this has been the case throughout history, since the time of Christ. Those who testify to the power of Christ in their lives and invite others to believe in him, the Lazaruses, well, those who are threatened by Christ's lordship will seek to persecute them and silence them. And sometimes that persecution gets dressed up in the power of the state, which it was right here, right? These are the leaders of Israel. And so they have the power to put people to death. Well, at this point, they had to have Rome's approval. And so that's been the case. Millions and millions of Christians uh, throughout the last 2,000 years have been killed in an attempt to silence them from testifying to the power of Jesus Christ in their life. But Jesus says, blessed are you when people persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Great is your reward in heaven. So we need to understand that persecution uh, will come and not cower from it, but prepare ourselves for it. And finally, the final takeaway, God moves his agenda forward despite and often through opposition. So here's the high, here's the high note. So the council gets together and they 
they come up with a, a way to stop God. We're going to put an end to Jesus. We're going to nip this at the bud. Game over. We're just going to kill him. And, and yet, in the, in the very machinations of the council, there is God prophesying. And it's through killing Jesus that they inadvertently open up the opportunity for eternal life to all people on planet Earth throughout all time. Isn't that awesome? And listen, God's good plans are never thwarted. Never. They cannot be thwarted. God's good plans for your life and for my life cannot be thwarted no matter how powerful the the opposition appears to us. God has got a great agenda, and he is marching it forward to its ultimate consummation in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, his people, say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, right? Come. Boy, I, the older I get, the more I, I cry that out. Jesus, please come back. And then at the same time, I think, but there are some other people who need to get saved, so maybe you've got to delay a little bit. But please come back. So I, I don't even know. God says, I am delaying to give people every opportunity. But, we, but he could come back at any moment, right? So we long for that and we pray for that. But if you're not right with God, you don't have faith in his son Jesus, don't leave here today because you don't know how long you have. I want to conclude with one final verse. This is Jesus appealing to us. And he's basically saying this. All right. You're, you're thinking to yourself, ah, but if I begin to follow Jesus, I have to give up the world. Am I really willing to give up the, the world? And Jesus reasons with us. And he asks this question in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Listen. We are eternal beings. Eternal beings. You will live forever and ever and ever. What is your soul worth, Jesus said? And are you really going to sell your eternal soul for a temporary opportunity to be king of your own little kingdom? Hello? Jesus, is that seriously a good bargain? No. I am king. I created the world. I created you. I am coming back to be king for eternity. That's the reality. That's happening. And so you can either bow the knee now, acknowledge my kingship, enter into my kingdom, and the joy of my kingdom, or for this, this small little time in which I give you the opportunity to decide for me or against me, you can choose to rebel so that you can be king for a tiny bit, and then for the rest of eternity, you don't have God in your life. And don't think to yourself, how many times have we heard, ah, I'm going to be in hell, but at least I'll be with my buddies, and we'll be doing all the fun stuff. <laughs> no, that sounds, that's ridiculous. All the fun stuff in your life derives from God. Now, Satan doesn't create anything new. He just creates counterfeits of God's good creation. So you pull God out of your existence, there's no pleasure. 
There's no laughter. There's no fun. There's no joy. There's no happiness. None of that. Because every good and perfect gift comes from above. And so do you want to spend eternity apart from God where there's nothing good at all? So Jesus is reasoning it. Reasoning with it. Is the entire world worth forfeiting your soul? Remember, uh, Satan came to Jesus and said, look at all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give them all. He tried that with, with Christ himself. Jesus said, no. I, I'm going to inherit something much, much greater.